what are the actual options you have? Not the one you want to take, but give me all the options you have and make them go through that exercise to see like, hey, I have the freedom to do this and this and this and this and this. And then if they still choose not to do it, that's okay. But at least then they made a very conscious choice. Yes. Rather than living in a narrative that restricts them and they go, I had no choice. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rachel J podcast. We're talking all things wellness and a lifestyle to help you do life better. I'm your host, Rachel J. It's been so great seeing everyone enjoying the recent episodes. Again, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Now, I know some of you have been listening to the podcast for a while, but you may not be subscribed. So if you haven't already, hit that subscribe button. It does make such a difference. It will help us grow the podcast for you so we can have more inspiring conversations and learn more from our amazing guests. This week, I'm very excited to be sitting down with psychotherapist and author of It's On Me. You may know her as the Millennial Therapist. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sarah Kubrick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for this chat. And we were just chatting about how you, well, are we allowed to say that you are in Australia? We are allowed to say we're in Australia, yes. I I live here now. (laughs) I know. And I was just going to say that normally you would be on the other side of the world and you spend quite a bit of time away from here. So it's so nice that we get to sit down I know. in person. I love in-person podcasts. Yeah. People are in for a treat. This is fun. <laughs> get ready, guys. Get ready. Now, I want to know, what is the one thing about Australia that you love the most that you can't get in Canada? Brunch. Brunch. Like proper brunch. They don't do brunch in Canada? Of course they do. But I find that whenever <laughs> I go anywhere else in the world, maybe France, they'll have the crepes, which, yeah. you know satisfying in a different way (laughs) but like proper brunch I would say is like Australia I'm always super keen and excited to come back yeah we've got a good brunching culture here yeah and beaches beaches breakfast all day now I haven't been to Canada actually Mm -hmm. but I have a few Canadian friends and it's for this reason that I really want to try for some reason Tim Hortons oh yes it's like (laughs) I mean it's not um high-end but it's really comforting. Like when mm. I go to Canada, I will like have Tim Hortons because he makes me think of my childhood. Yeah. And it's delicious in a somewhat gross kind of way. <laughs> I feel like people have told me that the coffee's not great, but no. the donuts are great. The donuts are great and their bagels are not bad, actually. Really? Yeah. Compete against the New York bagel? Oh, no. <laughs> not even a can. No, but it is It is a vibe. I, f- I feel like you go there for the atmosphere, for the fact it's Canadian. Yeah. It's yummy, but it's not like... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Canadian. It's Canadian. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. Well, I have to try that one day when I go over there. You should. Now, one of the things I love about you is the topics that you talk about because I feel like these conversations are so needed and... You know, you've been through quite the journey yourself. And so I'm interested to know what were the experiences that you've had in your life that have impacted you the most and led you to the work that you do? Oh, geez. (laughs) (laughs) Easy question first. Great. Yeah. Um, So I, I think my work is very closely tied to my life experiences. Um, probably the most formative, and my earliest life experience would be living through wars, um, two of them by the age of nine, and then immigrating to Canada. So I was born in Bosnia. I lived there. And then after the war, we, 
or during the war, we moved to Serbia and we were there. And then after the NATO bombings in 1999, we moved to Canada. So I think something like that, um, witnessing something like that is transformative. I think it kind of stole my childhood in a way. Um, but it also got me to think about really existential things. So when I was like 13, I was reading the Russian authors, the Russian greats, you know, like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, um, and my friends were not. <laughs> mm. And so I think that kind of sparked this interest of like, what is human nature? Why do we suffer? How can we possibly treat each other this way? I think I got to see more the dark part of society, or not just society, but humanity really early on. And so what fueled my curiosity was trying to figure out what does it mean to actually be human? Um, and then eventually that evolved into a deep desire to help, but initially it really came from just wanting to understand because I think as a child you're just so confused um, as to how can something like that happen, how can it happen to you, watching your family struggle, not being able to help. I think all of these things kind of led me to where I am today. Um, so I would say that was like the biggest and the most formative that way. And then in my early 20s, and this is something we bonded over <laughs> before we started recording, <laughs> I had my very first panic attack. Yes. Um, and I was flying from LA to Vancouver and I was going back. I was on like a girl's trip with my sister. We did it once a year. We had so much fun. And what that experience allowed me was to put my life on pause, which I think we all sometimes want and crave. And when I got on the flight to go home, I think in my head it was like an unpause. And right before we took off, I just had the sensation that I was going to die and something felt incredibly wrong with my body. I was sweating. My heartbeat was out of this world. And I had no idea what was happening. Everything was spinning. I was dizzy. And I remember just being like, I need to get off the flight. The flight attendants were like, sit down. I was like, absolutely <laughs> not. So I did get off the flight. And then I sat there at the gate and started to go into paralysis. Wow. So I started first losing the ability to move my arms. Um, and then eventually kind of crept up and I couldn't talk because my jaw was completely locked. And my sister was just kind of watching that called the paramedics, they came. And that was a really um, powerful moment for me, not because I had my first panic attack, but because I thought I was dying. And I think I realized in that moment that I was going to die without having lived. Mm -hmm. And that snapped me out of like the sleepwalking, the autopilot, the not taking responsibility for my life. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, you didn't tell me that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just before you record. I had to keep something for the yeah. podcast. No. My goodness. I feel like I, I can relate so strongly to the questioning even from when you were younger. And I feel like not everybody even has those thoughts when mm. they're that young. Yeah. Right. Of stepping out of themselves and looking at the world and going, is this, why is this happening mm. and why Why are people the way that they are? And oftentimes people take things at face value and just, okay, that's just how it is. Mm. Um, but even just you describing the, your panic attack experience and that almost being a trigger for deeper questioning, I guess. Absolutely. What was going on inside you too, right? Absolutely. And I think you kind of, you have this moment where you go, 
Does, is this all life boils down to? Me dying at a terminal in LA? Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, wow, all of that for this? Like, is this really how this ends? Mm. And I think, I, you know, I, I had um, what I, a pretty intense moment right before the panic attack as well that I just kind of brushed off. I just don't want to bore you to death. But I, I feel like there were many moments where my body was trying to communicate and my emotions were trying to communicate like, hey, something's a little off. And the one thing I'm in awe of when it comes to humanities, our ability to suppress and ignore and deny. It is powerful. Mm-hmm. And I did that for so long that I actually think I needed the panic attack to shake me awake. Because I think if he didn't, I would have just kept on, quote unquote, living my life um, in a really unfulfilling and meaningless sort of way. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do. And they have those moments, but continue to suppress and live life. Now, you talk about how we're often performing and observing life Mm -hmm. rather than actually living it. So... Is that to say that we're all wearing a mask? If you're, if you haven't got that awareness of, of, like what you just described there, of having that moment of questioning mm. how we're living our lives, you know, is it that we are conditioned to wear a mask? Is that a societal thing? Is it a cultural thing? Because majority of people do. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that's a huge part of it. I also think sometimes. We don't know who we are, so we allow others to tell us. Um, And I think when you are not rooted or grounded or haven't been taught about authenticity, I think it's so easy to just do what is expected of you. Mm. So, yes, it's a mask, but it's also just meeting pressures and expectations and... um, wanting to belong and wanting wanting to get patted on the back. And I, I think for me, that was the interesting part about the panic attack. And when it came, if you looked at my life objectively, you'd be like, this girl's killing it. Yeah. Like there was nothing about it. The society would be like, we're really worried about Sarah. Like mm-hmm. someone should check in on her. It was like, no, this is, you know, some people would use me as an example of like, this is how you should be living your early 20s. And people would be like, you should be so happy and so proud of yourself. So the mask I was wearing was just the life that was imposed on me. And because everyone was like, you must be so happy, I was like, yeah, I should be happy. Um, And so I think how society structures itself, it doesn't even let us really reflect if that's what we want. It's telling us this is what you want, and then it's telling us once we achieve it, now you should enjoy it. It's not like, hey, do you like it? Is is this aligning with you? And so I think a lot of us are just doing our best and it boils down to performing and being who we think we need to be rather than who we really are. And sometimes we also do it, and I have a section in the book where I'm like, sometimes we do it because we're a bit lazy. And I say that really lovingly. But the work it takes to figure out who you are and live a truly authentic life is so hard that sometimes we understand that's a path we could take and we go, I'm good. And you know what? I get it. Life is so hard. Adding that on for some people just seems impossible. But sometimes you just choose to keep the mask on because we don't want to 
um, we don't want to deal with the vulnerability and the stress of taking it off. Yeah. I mean, it probably requires a lot of courage as well. So much courage. To go into those places within yourself. But also then if you discover that what you actually truly desire isn't what society or culture or whatever would like to see you do, mm. it kind of forces you into a place of being, like you said, we all want to fit in and that's probably, you know, one of our human needs is to find belonging, right? It's not a connection. Yeah. And so the, maybe the fear of that as well of, of not what, it, what if who I really am doesn't really fit in. For sure. You know? And I remember being like, I have no idea who I am, but I'm going to take this mask off. And I think that that was really hard because I didn't know what I was presenting. <laughs> I was still figuring it out. So I, I sometimes wonder what that looked like from the outside where it's like, this girl has just cut out everything that was in her life and she has no idea what she's doing. And they were just watching me figure it out. And I think that that's the uncomfortable part. No, no one wants to be that vulnerable. I certainly did not. But it's not like I didn't know who I was and then suddenly I knew who I was. And so I just switched the way I looked. There was like years of me trying to figure it out. And so that's kind of the messy part that we're all trying to skip. Yeah, we're trying to avoid the uncomfortableness of that. Yeah, but that's where the fun is. <laughs> that's where the discovery is, exactly. right? So how do we actually connect to our true self? You said there that it's actually more about stripping things away perhaps, mm. especially with all those pressures and, and what we're being told we should be. How can people actually connect mm. to their true selves? I think for me, the first step, the important step was creating space. So imagine trying to cook in a kitchen where every pot and pan is dirty, where there's absolutely no counter space. It would be really, really incredibly difficult. And so I think that's our lives sometimes. And what we need to do is clean things out, wipe surfaces off, and then we actually have space to create and cook and nurture ourselves. Um, really ran with that metaphor. Um, <laughs> and so for me, that looks like not just letting go of relationships, but also letting go of beliefs and habits and narratives that I was holding on to that were taking out so much space that I couldn't afford myself space to create something new. And so that was a really huge part of it. And that was so difficult because there's so much grieving. I know we talk about authenticity as a super positive thing and it absolutely is. But the road to it is sometimes very isolating because no one else can do it for you. No one else can walk by you the entire time. It is like a thing you have to do for yourself. And then you just grieve so much. You grieve the previous versions of you. You grieve the versions you'll never become. You grieve people. You grieve your childhood. And so there was a lot of that kind of heaviness at the very start. But then I do think there is something really fun and adventurous amidst that mess <laughs> mm. in terms of when I talk about, okay, figuring out who you are, I use the example of Julia Roberts. I don't know if you watched Runaway Bride. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so for those who haven't, quick recap. <laughs> Julia Roberts plays Maggie, who has left numerous fiancés at the altar. And then there is Richard Gere, I think, mm, right, who yeah. plays the main um, 
male lead, and he's a journalist, and he hears about her. Now his career is not doing so well, so he needs a hot story. So he goes into um, this tiny town where Maggie is, and he interviews her and all her previous fiancés. And what he figures out by asking them one simple question, which was, what kind of eggs does Maggie like? All the men would give him different answers. And what he figured out was Maggie would just pretend to like all these eggs mm. because her partner liked it. And it was just easier that way. And how many of us, by the way, <laughs> have done something like that? We were like, yeah, I'm totally into camping. And yes. it's like, you've camped once, but he's really into it. So you're like, why not? Um, and there's a scene where he kind of confronts Maggie and he goes, you're so lost. You don't even know what kind of eggs you like. She goes, um, that's not being lost. That's just, you know, me changing my mind. He goes, no, that's you not having a mind of your own. Mm. And it was a really powerful line. And a couple scenes later, you see her making a dozen eggs and trying them all. Yeah. And I loved that because I think that's what we get to do. After the grief, after the space, what you get to do is you get to make all these experiences test them, try them, enjoy them, and see what aligns and what doesn't. And I think that can sound either tedious or very joyful, very fun. It really depends how, how you look at how it. How you look at it, yeah. how you choose to look at it. But to me, that's that's figuring it out. It's tasting all the eggs. Yeah. I mean, I love that analogy. Even that, I mean, how many times have you, has any, I've never heard of anybody testing all the different ways I know. To, to eat eggs, you know? And that's such a, a great way to look at it. But you mentioned there about the loss and the grief. And mm -hmm. I think that's, a, like you said, a huge part as to why a lot of people might find that whole process very daunting mm -hmm. going into themselves. So whilst we're going through this transformation of basically becoming, going from the old version of yourself to the new version of yourself, saying goodbye, it, it's not only to, like you said, beliefs, it's to people, it's to probably circumstances, to all the things that case your life, mm, like it, make mm -hmm. up your life and that version of you, because that particular version of you does have these kind of friends, does do these certain actions, does believe certain things about themselves. And then when you strip that all away, and I do agree that it's exciting to think about what you can build, but then there must be an element there of having to navigate that loss and that grief and that version of who you were or are no longer going to be, how do you suggest people do that? Because I also imagine, and I've definitely experienced this, where there's an element of dealing with the letting go mm. because it's familiar and it's safe as to what you know For already. Sure. So what would you suggest if someone is in that moment right now? And you're right. The familiar in our brain, our brain perceives that as safety. And I think, you know, lots of things to consider here. Um, first one is, yes, you're grieving, but what happens simultaneously is you'll find an egg you like and that will give you a, a sensation that will be so grounding, so resonating, so fulfilling that it does help with the grief. Mm. So when I would see glimpses of myself, that was such an intimate and amazing moment 
that it would make the letting go easier. And I think when we say the phrase letting go, people seem to think it's like forgive and forget. Now it's dead to you. It's done. And that's just not possible because that version of you still informs who you are today. It wasn't the final chapter of your story, but it still very much informs you. And so for me, I think it's important if you're someone dealing with this to just reframe what relationship you want with that version of you. You're not trying to kill her. Mm. You're just changing that relationship. She has still served you in some way. There's still lessons that you can draw on. So I think when I, when I was letting go of those versions, I I really tried to go, okay, you're still here, but you just have a very different role in my life right now. There was something really comforting about that. Um, and I think it's so easy to look back on versions that didn't serve us and be upset or ashamed or dislike them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's so unfair because they still led you to where you are today. And so I, ju- I just think having a bit of compassion is so, so important uh, and realizing that, you know, they're just here to inform and what you do from now on, you're completely free of them. You can do whatever you want um, is always helpful. Yeah, I really love that. I really love almost like deciding upon the relationship you're going to have with that past version and that it doesn't have to be a negative thing. Yeah. Frame it for yourself in that way. Yeah. I think it's just evolution. I mean, I think it, it's it's so cool. And there's definitely versions of Sarah that I would not want to revisit. Yes. <laughs> I think we all have that. You know, it's just like, okay, you stay there. But um, I think learning not to not to give them more space than they need is was really important. Yeah. No, I really like that. Now, in your work, you also have a bit of a central theme around hard truths mm-hmm. and taking personal responsibility. And I do feel like in the world we live in, I do wonder how much of the truth people really want to hear and are also willing to accept. Mm-hmm. So why do you think it's so hard for people to hear the hard truths? I think because when you hear the hard truths, what it boils down to, it's asking you to change. Mm-hmm. And it's not that people don't want to hear the truth, which they don't, but what people really fundamentally don't want to do is change. And so when they hear something that points to that need, to that evolution, to that growth, to the healing that's not there, um, that's when they resist it. And I understand because they want to keep things as they are. That seems familiar. That seems safe. Mm -hmm. Again, the same theme. Um, And so that's, I think, where the biggest resistance comes from. Or it means they have to restructure their belief system or they have to let go of a friend or they have to leave their relationship. It's so action forward. And then if they don't and if they have the truth and do nothing about it, then it's self-betrayal. So once you hear it, you can't undo it. (laughs) And whatever you choose to do or not do as a consequence has a consequence. Yes. And so I think that's what we don't like about it. It's almost being forced by life to do something and there's no neutral way out. But don't you think as well that happens to people? So even if they do hear the hard truth and like you said, they either have the decision to change Mm -hmm. or stay where they are, that a lot of people choose not to change Mm -hmm. and then suppress... Mm -hmm the fact that they've made the decision and they and then this is just what I've observed that 
that people position themselves in a way of, of being, well, my hands are tied. Yeah. I can't do anything about that. Or the circumstances are this way. The situation is this way. Mm. I can't do anything. Yeah. When in actual fact, I mean, we all have a choice mm. regardless of whether you take action or not. Not taking action is a choice. It's action, yeah. Right? It's a conscious choice. So what, what's your perspective on that? Ooh, powerlessness. That's a... Mm. I, the one thing I want to say before that is that you can suppress all you want. It doesn't mean there's no consequence to that, right? Like you can pretend that there's no consequence to it, but there is because now you are using your mental load to suppress a truth. Now you're acting from a place of fear, trying not to encounter that truth again. Mm. There's always a consequence to suppression and denial, um, even though in our minds we would like to pretend there isn't. Um, so that's something I just wanted to flag, but powerlessness is something I try to push against in my book quite strongly with the sense of responsibility and freedom. And, you know, I use Viktor Frankl as an example. He's an advocate for the fact that we always have freedom. Now he wrote this after living through, I mean, a concentration camp. Yeah. And I have, a, I think, a line in my book that says, what's our excuse? As in, like, if someone who's been through that can go, I still had one of the last human freedoms, his freedom to create meaning, his freedom of attitude. What does that say mm-hmm. about our freedom to do things? Now, I think it's really important to understand that even existential philosophers understood that not everyone has the same degree of freedom. Viktor Frankl had much less freedom than I do. Period. That's objective. Mm-hmm. And yet we both have a degree of freedom. So I think it's about realizing what power, what control do you still have and utilizing it. I think when people go, I can't do anything about this, I would push back because at least you can change how you feel about it, how you think about it, what meaning you create. But for most of us, we can actually do something about it. When we say that, what we mean is it's going to be really hard and uncomfortable and there's going to be a lot of loss and I can't be bothered, (laughs) which is not the same thing as not being able to do something. And that's an exercise I'll do with my clients where I'll be like, in an alternate universe, or I'll even just say, what are the actual options you have? Not the one you want to take, but give me all the options you have and make them go through that exercise to see like, hey, I have the freedom to do this and this and this and this and this. And then if they still choose not to do it, that's okay. But at least then they made a very conscious choice. Yes. Rather than living in a narrative that restricts them and they go, I had no choice. That's not a very empowered way to live your life. And then life happens to you mm-hmm. rather than you happening to life. Um, and so I'm always about identifying the freedom and the responsibility and trying to get rid of the narrative of like, I'm a victim in my own life, not because you might not actually be a victim in certain contexts and circumstances, but because you deserve a life that's much bigger than that. Yeah. Yes. And I, I mean, I'm a huge advocate for accepting personal responsibility, mm. which, which is a thing that you talk a lot about. And also just going back to the book, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is an amazing so book. It really does give you perspective on your life because you're right. What excuse do we yeah. have if we've <laughs> gone through all of that? But, you know, in my observations as well, I feel like it seems very difficult for people to take responsibility sometimes. Mm. And even I guess it's 
also comes down to the individual's sense of awareness of, mm-hmm. of what that responsibility is. And for example, if it's in a relationship or, or something like that, to accept their part in either a relationship or a situation, situation it, it seems easier. It's easier to blame an external circumstance or someone else. Hmm. And so why do you think it's so hard for people to accept personal responsibility? Because that's the empowering place, yeah. right? And that's where we have control. And even going back to Viktor Frankl's book, it's where we create meaning and create the narrative for ourselves and the lens through which we choose to see our lives. Yeah. So if you are aware of that, why then is it still so difficult for people to to accept that responsibility? I think because we um, confuse responsibility and blame. People don't know the difference of just accountability versus shaming. Mm. <laughs> and so a lot of people will take on the mistake as if it was a character flaw, as if it was something that's wrong with them. And it quickly turns from from maybe guilt into shame or from accountability to blame or character assassination. And I think we just haven't really been taught as society that there's like a healthy way to take responsibility. And I think, you know, if you, my title is it's on me and that's either going to land or it's not going to land. And that really depends on your relationship to your sense of responsibility. Mm. I find responsibility as one of the most empowering concepts. It is what set me free. It what helped me live the life I have right now. It's great. Does it mean it's always comfortable? No. Does it mean (laughs) that it's like sometimes I'm like, damn it, I really screwed up? Yes, it does. Does that feel good? No. But the consequences are so positive. Mm -hmm. It's a life that I want. And I think if your um, relationship or responsibility was being uh, blamed and then punished or then isolated or then um, humiliated or whatever it is, that's what you're trying to avoid. So then you're going to avoid responsibility. And we're not good when people take responsibility. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, you know, I I made a mistake and we'll either label them as that for a really long time and never let them forget. So then why would people want to take responsibility? Mm. Or we'll dismiss their apology, which then makes them feel like maybe I shouldn't have taken the responsibility. So I think also how we as a community and Mm. as a society treat each other when we do or don't take responsibility plays into this narrative and discomfort that we each have with it. But no one likes to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> no one likes the consequences of being wrong or making a mistake. So I like I get it, but I think the sooner people evaluate and investigate their relationship to responsibility or even learn like I would love to ask people like how do you define it? Give me an example of like a time you took responsibility and it went well. Give me an example of when you took responsibility and went poorly. Um, and just trying to get you really curious of what your relationship is to that word and to that kind of concept. Mm, it's a, such a great point. I've never thought of it like that in a kind of broader context mm. outside of just you taking responsibility. It's also the response of what what is coming back at you when you do mm. that. Because obviously, you're right, if 
if in the past you have done that and it's been met with a negative response, you might think, well, that didn't go so well. <laughs> what was the, you know, uh, what yeah. was the point of that? You're like, thank you, next. Yeah, I exactly. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I want to be all aware and, you know. Responsible. Responsible and, yeah. 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 Now, one thing that I've observed in my own life and with people in my life is that often people are unaware of their own wounds mm. and their patterns of behaviour and they can tend to project their pain onto other people but also at the same time, like we were talking about earlier, that they will continue to take that victim stance mm. in their lives. And so to them it seems like everybody else is doing something to them like you mentioned and mm. it's not an empowered place. And, you know, of course I think we can all be like this in oh, certain yeah. contexts in well, our lives. Well, not me. I'm so, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm so Take responsibility yeah, yeah. all the time. <laughs> all the time. No. Um, but, not, you know, I find it very hard to watch in other people and mm. it's, it's the sense of seeing somebody suffer in their own pain mm. that is really difficult to see. And, and not to say that I've never done it myself because I'm, I know that I probably have, but when it's somebody in your life that you care about, there's not really much that you can do for them when they're in that place because mm. they're in their own suffering, they're in their own pain. So in terms of navigating pain and suffering, mm. how can people start to identify that within themselves when they are actually in pain? And because it's not so obvious sometimes. Mm. And the pain I'm talking about is more, like I said, childhood wounds unhealed traumas, mm. those things are unconscious a lot of the time unless you're consciously looking at them and then tend to play out in your life. So how can we start to really become more aware of those and become more conscious of them? Yeah, I think a great thing to look for are patterns. Patterns rarely lie. Mm -hmm. And if you're having the same arguments, if your relationships are ending the same way, if you're finding yourself super excited about things and then dropping them, if you're constantly saying yes when you want to say no, these are incredibly telling and they are coming from somewhere. And for a lot of us, they are coming from our wounds. So I think patterns are a huge one. And the second one, which was something that happened to me was I don't know if you've ever done something and then been like, what? <laughs> Why did I do that? Why did I do yeah. that? Like, I like, or just being like, I don't know who just did that. Like, and it can be something super cringy or it can be something super embarrassing or it can be something really serious. You're like, what was I thinking? Because you cannot even recognize the person that just did that an hour ago. Mm. And I think that's a huge one where there's a disconnect and something other than you was driving it. So who was the driver? Yeah. And that can be a really good place to go, okay, what is my wound? What, what is the issue that's unfolding that's subconsciously my drive without me realizing it? Um, and for me, it was self-loss. For others, it's childhood trauma. It's, it's a bunch of things. Um, but I think that's a really good way to notice it is like discrepancies in behaviors or feeling like you're fragmented. You don't really get it, what's happening. And then also just patterns. Yeah, I like that a lot. I find what I find with patterns, this is what I do personally, and I talk about this a lot, is journaling. Mm. And I've been a writer since I was, or I've written in a journal since I was like 14. Amazing. And so when you write, 
and you write just, you just let it out on the page, what you can notice is your patterns of behaviour mm-hmm. because even if you, you know, are not really across the, you know, if I read back to journals from when I was younger, the the characters are kind of, yes, I kind of remember them, but it's more how am I feeling about that mm. when something like this happens? And then you can read back pages and pages of different things and events that happen in your life where you might notice then when this happens, I do this. Mm-hmm. When this Themes. Ha- yeah. And... I've found that that's been such a great way to identify my patterns of behaviour and particularly when it comes to challenging things that happen in your life because we we all sort of have default responses, right, that are almost unconsciously programmed until mm. we become conscious of them. Mm. And so I love that you brought up patterns because that's one of the ways I feel like I've been able to really delve into what what do I do when things aren't going well? or when there's pain, or when there's heartbreak, Mm. you know. I love that you brought up journaling. (laughs) Because yes. And also, sometimes I'll get clients to journal about something. Let's say that they're in an unhappy relationship and they don't really want to admit it to themselves. Mm. So you'll be like, great, journal every day, whatever comes up for you. And what's great about that is then you ask them to go six months back and read a journal entry, any journal entry. And then they'll realize nothing's changed and that this feeling they think they're feeling that's very temporary actually has lasted for a year or two years or six months. And people can tell you like, hey, Sarah, I actually think this is something we've, we've had this conversation before. I feel like you've been struggling with it. But when you read your own freaking words mm-hmm. and it is... No one is skewing your perception. No one's interpreting what you said. It is there, ink on paper. And it's telling you exactly how you're feeling now or it's telling you how long something's lasted. I think there's something so confrontational about journaling. Mm -hmm. It's like having your receipts, you know? It's just like it's literally there. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I like it because it does, again, back to accountability. It's like you can pretend that this is a new issue you're having, but... We know, we have seen, you have proof that it's actually been going on for a really long time. So I think journaling is such a great way to raise our self-awareness. And as you said, like look for themes and patterns and just get to know ourselves. Mm. Um, So I'm like a huge advocate for journaling. I'm like, yes, do it. I know. I mean, I love it so much. And I feel like anyone who is not journaling right now, you need to be journaling. And just, I think sometimes it can be daunting if you've never, if you you don't consider yourself a writer per se, mm-hmm. but it's literally just stream of consciousness. So it doesn't, it, you don't have to judge what comes out on the page. Just let it out. I know. I, I, um, have a friend who like, she's like, I need my perfect pen and I need a really pretty journal and <laughs> my handwriting is messy. She'll like tear off the page. And like, it's just, I have to be like, just take a deep breath. Like my journal looks like I, like wrote blindfolded and drunk. Like it's just like, you know, because that's not the point. And I think it has to be a shame-free space or else it becomes like a task. It becomes tedious. Learning about yourself. Like I just started a journaling challenge actually. And it's like, I think we don't teach people how to journal and then it just becomes so overwhelming. So I, I think if you're someone who's interested in learning to to journal, like learn about how to do it, what are different ways to do it. Um experiment what works for you. Just don't give up on it too quickly. Yeah. 
Yeah, just keep going with it. I mean, I love it. I ca- I cannot recommend it enough. And, and and like we were just talking about there, the self-awareness piece and the mm. self-reflection piece is the most that, – that's the most benefit that you're going to get out of it is that you learn more about yourself and you learn those patterns of behaviour mm. and then you can start to consciously shift them into a, you know, a new version mm-hmm. you know, as we step into these newer versions of ourselves. Now, I think – you know, obviously we all have darker parts of ourselves and that can sometimes be very confronting for mm. us to look at. And I think we all know in theory that we are we are all flawed, mm-hmm. but I think sometimes it can be really hard to accept those parts of ourselves when we do delve into them and parts that we don't really like. And we even spoke about it then, you know, why did I do that? Mm-hmm. Who was that version of myself? Mm. But what's your suggestion for not completely getting negative on yourself when you are working through this mm. and not feeling like a complete failure of a person, you know, yeah. when, you're, when you're seeing this, these darker parts of yourself. I think just understanding that they don't define you is really important. It's, it's understanding, you know, where they come from and just giving yourself grace. I mean... Mm-hmm. I know there's like this um, pressure to be perfect. I understand that when we're on this like self-help, mental health kick, it's like it's kind of become a little toxic in terms of how we look at it. It's like all these steps and you're just progressing and it's just, and I that's just not how life works. And so understanding that it's cyclical, it's gradual and that these parts of you that you don't necessarily like are there as messengers is so important. That was an important reframe for me. Mm-hmm. It's like all I'm taking away from it is why did this part of me, if we want to call it part, or for me it was why did this emotion come up and what is it trying to communicate rather than getting really frustrated or discouraged that I was feeling angry still about something I thought of outgrown and processed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um or feeling really triggered and then being like, well, I thought I processed this trauma. Why am I still triggered? Um, or seeing me act out in a certain way that I would have done a behavior, something I would have done 10 years ago and being like, but I thought I left her behind. Yeah. <laughs> and I think just being curious is so important because these things don't come out because you're, I don't want to swear, because you're mean, you know? (laughs) Like, they don't come out because you're just, like, bored and you're like, let's spice things up and let's mess up her day and let's, like, make her question herself. It's like, there are reasons. And so maybe you're no longer being as careful with who you hang out with. Maybe you're no longer connecting to yourself. Maybe you're no longer taking responsibility for your actions. Maybe um, you are so busy that your emotions need to get louder in order to communicate what you're experiencing. And so... For me, curiosity, it doesn't cure all, but I think is a really important, like curiosity and openness are so important. I can't emphasize that enough when it comes to self-work because you're going to confuse the crap out of yourself all the time. And <laughs> and that's okay. And I think you're going to learn constantly about yourself because you're constantly changing and evolving. So as long as you look at it as a lifelong journey rather than like a checklist, yeah, you're going to have an easier time. But if you're like, I'm going to become self-actualized in about a year. That is my New Year's resolution. <laughs> timeline. It's a timeline. Then I think that's when the frustrations come in. Yeah. I really love that question of almost asking your emotions, wh- 
why why have they come up what is this trying to teach me yeah when someone cries one of my favorite questions from my mentor was if your tears could speak what would they say wow and that's such a cool question because it's they're they are saying something to you what are they saying and when people actually answer that question it's usually really profound yeah oh, i really like that one as well mm-hmm. what are your tri- what are your tears trying to say that's a really great one. One for journaling, guys, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Now, I feel like, you know, when we talk about this sense of self, I feel like it can kind of lead to this sense of feeling peace and security. And when, and when I say security, I mean a sense of security in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then there can be this kind of unconscious desire to feel if we don't have that, if we don't have that sense of self, to fill that sense with a relationship or with other things outside of ourselves. So how do we maintain a sense of self in our relationships Mm. rather than looking to almost validate ourselves through external means? Yeah. The phrase I really dislike is, you complete me, <laughs> which I get is a super romantic phrase from the rom-com era mm-hmm. of the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's just so problematic in terms of that's what we do. We go, I don't have a sense of self, so my sense of self will become this person's partner. Um, and I think that we need to be really cautious when we do something like that. Um the answer to your question is twofold. One is we need to be careful who we get into a relationship with. Does this person give us enough space? Are they imposing a different sense of self on us? Or are they uh, celebrating and witnessing and being curious about the person you're becoming? So that's a huge one. I don't think um, the other person's completely irrelevant in this equation. Mm. Um, and the second, I think it is difficult to enter a relationship without knowing who you are. Um And then try to, I don't even know, you're not really protecting anything because it doesn't exist. Mm. I always say if you're in a relationship with someone without knowing who you are, who's that person in a relationship with? I don't, like that would be so confusing for them as well. So if you want successful relationships, healthy relationships, I always say try. And it's not like you fully know who you are, check. But try to have grounding, inner grounding, inner knowing, inner intimacy And then make sure that you value it as much as you value your relationship with the other person. Because your relationship with yourself is still a relationship. So if you ignore the calls, if you um, make fun of yourself, if you choose the other person over you, if you do all the things that would be unacceptable in any other kind of relationship, then you're going to lose the relationship you have with you. So... My thing is always make sure you honor your relationship with yourself as much as you honor it with the other person, if not more. Mm, I love that. I love that. We need to place that as of highest importance, really, Mm -hmm. because who you are, who you bring to the relationship, again, it's that taking that personal responsibility, right, of being the best version of yourself that you can to enter Mm -hmm. into a relationship. And not to say that you have to be perfect, but to have a good sense of and grounding in who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I really love that. 
And that's the best way to find a right partner too. Yeah. Because how do you find a partner that aligns if you don't know what aligns? So chances are finding someone who's really compatible heightens once you figure yourself out. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Mm -hmm. So I've got the final three questions for you, Sarah. So what drives you? Ooh, um, meaning. Mm. I think that's what drives me. And sometimes that (laughs) scares me. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think um, I I am very driven by things that give me meaning. And often that's in form of service and connection. Mm. Um, And so if I don't find something meaningful, you often won't see me do it. Um, and I become a completely different version of myself that's like lazy, uninspired, whatever. And that's usually now I learned that that's a cue that this doesn't align and it's not meaningful. And I, if it feels that hard, probably isn't something I should be doing. Yeah. No, I like that. I've never heard that answer actually meaning. I really <laughs> like that. The next one is if you knew what you know now, mm-hmm. how would you have lived your life differently? I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I need to reframe this question yeah. because no one ever says that they would live it differently. Um, I mean, it also feels sad to to wipe away or erase that version that didn't know. Yeah, but I would be a really mature twenty year old. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, but I think for me, it's almost cooler to see what I would keep the same. And I think something that would be the same and what did remain the same, even though I flipped my life upside down, was my desire to be a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. It's like a consistent thread from age nine to my 30s. And so that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's <laughs> Doesn't awesome. answer your question, but no, there you go. <laughs> but you know what? I have, I've realized that I do ask that question. And because of the, the type of guests that I have on this show, no one believes in regret. No one believes in uh, – often people have the frame of – Everything that I've been through, regardless of whether it's been quote-unquote positive or negative, has brought me to the place where I am now and I've learnt all the lessons along the way. So like you, no one would really change anything. Yeah. And my final question for you Mm -hmm. is, what is the biggest lesson you have learnt in your life so far? Mm. Who you become will be your greatest achievement. Mm. I don't think anything else truly... I mean, it matters in terms of meaning, but I think when you look at success and when you look at things you think are going to make you happy and then you achieve them and then you go, meh, is this what it was? You know, everyone's had that. It's like post-graduation blues. I don't know if that's a real thing. (laughs) Or like after your honeymoon or like New Year's Eve, it's, it's this hope that when we achieve this thing, our life will change or we'll feel differently about ourselves or... The world will give us something we want from it. And in reality, I think so much joy for me and so much meaning just came from liking who I was and growing into that person and really respecting that person. And so I think the lesson over time was that the thing that's going to matter the most um, is the type of person, the way I show up in the world, the type of person I become. Then also my relationships. I think maybe this is like an older person thing, but the older you get, I feel like you really start to be like, it does boil down to those relationships. It's like you can have all the things in the world, but if you don't have someone to celebrate things with, to to cry with, to connect with, none of it 
really matters. At least that was like a big lesson for me last year of like, I just realized how much I value connections. And so those are my lessons. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I feel like we could literally be here for hours. I know, it's great. And I would love to. Let's do it over coffee one day. Amazing. <laughs> but thank you so much for being on the thank show. Thank you so much for, for having me and for asking such fun questions. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> now, um, where can people find you and all your amazing work and the book? It's on me, which is Sarah's book. Um, so the book, It's on Me, you can find anywhere books are sold. Um, it's also being translated to 16 languages at this time, so hopefully amazing. worldwide. Um, I'm most active on Instagram. My handle is millennial.therapist. And then I do have two newsletters on Substack. Amazing. Which are really fun in case you want a bit more than Instagram and a bit less than my book. <laughs> um, and they're weekly and they're more existential. And so if you kind of like those types of topics and want to get a bit deeper that's kind of it oh and I started a journaling challenge which I wasn't going to promote but this is tonight is going to be the first time I give a first round of questions oh I love this so much so if you're someone who wants to journal and need some inspiration some tips and some questions check out my uh sub stack you'll be there oh amazing and you know what also the quality of your answers is dependent on the quality of your questions. Ooh, I know. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, Sarah, these are terrible. I'm like, I know it was my fault. But it's coming from a psychotherapist, so you know. I, I will try my best. Yeah. That's my promise is yeah. I will try my best. <laughs> Amazing. So we'll make sure we pop up all those links in the show notes, guys, so make sure you check it out. Tell us what you loved and learnt from this episode by leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. Screenshot this episode and tag us and share it to your socials. Thank you again, Sarah, for joining me on the show and thank you guys for listening. We'll catch Catch you next time on the Rachel J Podcast.